Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. Great to see you. Hello to all of you who are worshiping with us at all of our different venues and online. I would like to start by telling you guys my favorite thing that I get to say from this pulpit, which is open your Bibles, please. Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter two. Nehemiah chapter two. All of the verses that we're gonna be talking about today are not gonna come up on the screen. So I'd love for you to see God's word for yourself. And you can double check everything that I'm saying right there in your own copy of the scripture. So we're gonna continue our series called Rebuilding. And remember, we are using this kind of theme and ideas. We talk about all the things that Nehemiah did to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, to talk about the rebuilding projects in our own life. And it's very easy, though, for us to think that Nehemiah you know, just did this like home project, like rebuilding a wall. But this was a massive task. I know that if you read through uh, Nehemiah 1 through 7, which is where he actually rebuilds the walls, it's going to take you about as long as it's going to take you to watch one of those DIY project shows where they rebuild a bathroom or something like that in about 30 minutes. But this project was a huge project. I just want to remind you of a few things that are going on as, as Nehemiah approached this rebuilding project of the walls around Jerusalem. Remember first that, that the walls were about 2.5 miles, miles around the city. That's a lot of rebuilding to do. Not to mention that the walls had been torn down 140 years prior to Nehemiah getting this word. Think about all the, the stuff that had grown up around the walls that had been torn down over 140 years, 140 years of disrepair. And not, not to mention that good people have gone back and tried to rebuild the walls before Nehemiah. I mean, some real superstars uh, of the Jewish faith. Some superstars like Zerubbabel and Ezra, these are godly people that had tried to go back and do the same project that Nehemiah was going to take on himself. Not to mention that Nehemiah has a really comfortable, safe, good job that he needs to leave. And oh yeah, his boss is an unbeliever. That when he says, oh boss, my God's city, the walls have been torn down. And he's like, yeah, who cares? He doesn't care. It's, it's no skin off his back if he doesn't grant Nehemiah's request. I mean, when you start looking at all of the circumstances surrounding the rebuilding project that Nehemiah is about to take on, the task seems impossible and certainly overwhelming. But does that mean that he shouldn't take it on? You see, I love what we're going to get into today in Nehemiah chapter 2 because many of the rebuilding projects that are going on in your own life, and I'm not talking about DIY, you know, renovation of bathrooms, those rebuilding projects can seem impossible and overwhelming. Those tasks, you can say, Cody, I don't know how that's going to happen. I'm super excited about this series because of the things that have, have surfaced just as we've begun. And I've had conversations with you and I've had phone calls and I've had emails where people are say, saying, Cody, I don't know how my wife is gonna come back to me. I don't know how to start again when my spouse went on to glory. I don't know how to rebuild my career when I've lost my job and nobody's gonna give me another chance. 
I don't know how I'm gonna rebuild that friendship again because those bridges have been burned. I mean, the, the rebuilding projects that God wants to do, not only in your life, but in your family, in your career, they can seem overwhelming and maybe even impossible. So what do you do? What do you do if you want a fresh start? What do you do when you face this task that seems overwhelming, even if it only means that the rebuilding task ahead is just to rebuild your confidence in a sovereign God? Where do you start? We start in Nehemiah chapter two, because that's what we're gonna look at today, is how do you begin this rebuilding process when the task seems impossible and certainly overwhelming? So let's pick it up in Nehemiah chapter two, we're gonna begin in verses one and two, just to kind of set the context for you. We're gonna go in and out of the text, which is why I want you to have an open Bible no matter where you are, because I want you to see what God is doing in and through Nehemiah and his thought process and the actions that he takes. So Nehemiah chapter two, beginning in verse one, he says, in the month of Nisan, and I'm sure there's a great joke there, I just don't have it. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, remember, he is a cupbearer, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. So that's what he's talking about. When wine was before him, he had probably just tasted the wine and he's handing it over to Artaxerxes. I took up the wine and gave it to the king. See, there you go. Now I had not been sad in his presence. I'd never been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, you're not ill, so what's going on? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then Nehemiah said, I was very much afraid. Stop right there for just a second. So Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king, his job is to taste the, the food and the wine that's going to go over to the king to make sure that it, he, it wasn't poisoned. And so he, that's why he says, hey, you're not ill, you're not sick, so you're not poisoned. You just tasted the wine that you just gave me, so you're not ill, so what is going on with you? He recognizes that there's something going on with his countenance. Now, we know because we read chapter one and because we know uh, coming up after this that one of the things that's on Nehemiah's heart is this burden to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That, that's why his heart is sad. That's why he has, he, he's downcast in his countenance. And this is, he's so downcast that King Artaxerxes recognizes it. You've never been sad before, so what's going on with you? Now, here's something that I want you to, to remember. Now, go back to the month of Nisan, remember? We had started this in the month of Chislev, back in chapter one. This was about three to four months this was about, for sake of conversation, 100 days. So for 100 days from the time that Nehemiah had had this burden left on his heart to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem after he gotten the report that his people were in distress back in Jerusalem, that God's reputation was in disrepair, that the city that bore God's name was just in shambles, in disarray, Nehemiah was praying. But for 100 days, King Artaxerxes didn't notice anything different about him. For 100 days, Nehemiah was faithful to what God had called him to do. He was going into work, he was doing his job, and he was going back in secret, and he was praying. 
He was, he, he, was, he was locked in his prayer closet, giving this burden to God. But then he was going, getting up, showing up, going to work. Every single day, he was being faithful. Now, here's what I want you to understand with this point. From, from just this, these beginning verses, is that when you face a task that seems impossible or even overwhelming, you need to pray and wait for God to open a door of opportunity. Pray and wait for God to open a door of opportunity. For a hundred days, Nehemiah is praying in secret and then he's going to work. And he's praying and saying, God, if this is really your will, I I need you to open up a door. This task seems overwhelming. 140 years this hasn't been done. I know great godly men, probably godly men better than I am, with wonderful followers have gone back to Jerusalem to try to do this and they haven't been able to do it. This task seems impossible. And so what does he do? He just prays and he prays and he prays. And he's faithful to the things that God has called him to do, but he waits for God to open a door of opportunity. Look at verses four and five and then we'll we'll finish in verse eight. Beginning in verse four though, it says, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So he recognizes there's something going on with Nehemiah and Nehemiah begins to share this request and he says, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I wanna come back to that in just one moment. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king granted me what I had asked for. For the good hand of my God was upon me. And we're going to stop right there. Now, I want to go back to that prayer because I've heard people talk about this prayer in really interesting ways. The prayer that's in verse five, some had called, some people have called it arrow prayers or emergency prayers. Like a, you, get an ask, you get asked a question, it's like, you know, and you shoot up a prayer to God real fast. Probably not with those sound effects, but you shoot up a prayer to God and you're just like, God, help me. You know, and then, and, then you, and then you jump. What I need you to understand is this is a part of who Nehemiah was, meaning he was a man of prayer. That emergency prayer, if you want to call it that, was based on 100 days of prayer. That was his foundation. 100 days of prayer and seeking the Lord in secret without, without uh, ever asking for anybody to join him or anything. It was just, this is my burden before the Lord. But then the Lord opens up a door of opportunity and King Artaxerxes says, hey, what are you requesting of me? And then he prays that emergency prayer because he wants to just pray one last time before he spits out this burden that's on his heart before an unbelieving king. And that's really crucial for us to understand as believers. Folks, we have to have lives that have a foundation of prayer, not just lives that are built on emergency prayers. Emergency prayers are great. I'm not saying don't pray them. We should pray those sporadic prayers. We should say those ones that come right off the cuff, that come right before you're about to make a big decision. Absolutely pray about those things but know that that's based on the burden that you've been carrying to the Lord day in and day out as you've remained faithful to him. You see, what I think Nehemiah may have been praying for, I don't know, let me just say this. One of the things I think 
I pray for in, in my life, and I pray for you, certainly. What we pray for in those 100 days of foundational prayer is that God would make things clear and obvious. God, would you make things clear and obvious? And, here, and here's why. Here's why I pray those things for you and for me and my family, or, or if I get a prayer request from you. Because I believe that if you have a heart that is yielded to God and you want to honor God with your life, then why would God not want to make it clear and obvious of how to follow him? Can, can anybody come up with a good argument against that? I, I, I don't think so. I mean, even, even in Jeremiah, when, when God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, he says, call to me and I will show you great and unsearchable things. He wants to make the path to life, the path that he has for you, the path that honors him, wants to make it clear and obvious. So that's what I pray for. God, just make it clear and obvious. So think about Nehemiah's prayers here. He's been praying for 100 days. God, I feel like this is the burden you put on my heart. God, this is what I feel like needs to be done. God, this is what I feel like you're leading me to. God, you're gonna have to provide. God, you're gonna have to do all these things. Make it clear and obvious, make it clear and obvious, make it clear and obvious. And then all of a sudden, Artaxerxes, one day after 100 days, goes, hey, what's up with you? You don't seem like your normal self today. Is there, is there something going on with you? And he goes, here's my opportunity. He didn't force his way in. God opened a door that was clear and obvious, and then he stepped into it. He stepped into it with God's, is knowing that it was God's will. You see, I wanna give you an analogy of how to think about this in your own life, of trying to remain in prayer and look for things that are clear and obvious. Next Sunday, some of you might watch a football game that's coming up. It's called the Super Bowl, if you haven't heard of it. And I know some of you will not watch it because you only want to watch the commercials, but I hope that you would at least watch a little bit of the football game because I want you to see one particular thing and then you can go do whatever you want if you don't care about football. But just watch this one little part because in football, when the offense wants to pass the ball, when the quarterback wants to pass the ball, oftentimes the linemen make what is called a pocket Okay, a pocket. And you can kind of see that. This is my nod to all of you Aggies. God bless you. You know what? I love you so much. Thank you so much for waiting till I said that. Uh, right on cue. There you go. Thank you. Uh, we do love our Aggies here. Unfortunately, you lost this game. But uh, there's good old Johnny football back there for you. Um, but you can see this kind of little, little uh, semicircle crescent moon pocket. And the idea is to create this protection for the quarterback so that he has an opportunity to look downfield for these different receivers to get open. And he's got to wait and trust this pocket of protection until his receivers can run their routes and get open the way that they're supposed to get open. Now, here's what oftentimes happens. Oftentimes, sometimes, those quarterbacks can get anxious. That pressure can start getting closer and closer. And then they can leave this pocket of protection and try to run and get some yards, but they're never gonna get as many yards as they could if they would throw the ball downfield. 
And that's why they always talk about how quarterbacks need a great pocket presence. They need to be able to feel and, and, and be patient in the, in the pocket and allow their receivers to get open downfield because they're going to get far more if they would just wait for that open receiver to get open and then boom, and they throw it downfield and they get 30 yards instead of feeling like they're getting anxious and the pressure's coming in and kind of trying to scramble and they get three yards or they get sacked. Now, here's my point, is what we've got to do as believers is we have to remain in the prayer pocket until a window of opportunity opens up later on. You see, you gotta trust the protection that God has put around you, that you are in the hand of a sovereign God who loves you and cares for you. And even though the pressure might feel like it's beginning to, to, to come in on you, you can't, don't leave the prayer pocket. See, sometimes I think we leave that prayer pocket too early and we try to scramble and we try to make something happen on our own, in our own strength. And we get three yards and we go, yeah. And God goes, man, if you would have just waited for an open door, an opportunity, you could have had 30. I, I, I got you on this one. I, I've got your protection. Just stay in the prayer pocket a little bit longer until he makes something that's clear and obvious open up down the field. And, he, and here's why I, I want you to do that, is because when you wait for God's answer, you can move forward with God's authority. When you wait for God's answer to your prayer, not an answer that you make up, not an answer that you think, oh, I, well, I heard you say this, God, so I'm going. An answer that is clear and obvious. When you wait for his answer, then that means you can move forward with God's authority. You see, I think Nehemiah could have easily left the prayer pocket way early. A hundred days prior to this conversation, 99 days prior to this conversation. And he could have left and just gone to King Artaxerxes and said, I quit, I'm out of here and I'm going. And guess what? He would have gone, he would have tried to do something in his own strength and it wouldn't have been blessed the way that this was blessed. Here's why I know, because after praying for this 100 days, he gives this request to King Artaxerxes. And he says, here's what I need. I need letters from you. Because remember, this is, a, this is 800 miles. He's in Susa, the capital of Persia. And he's going to Judah, Jerusalem, 800 miles. He was gonna have to cross through all these different territories. He said, King Artaxerxes, here's what I need. I need your authority. I need your letters that tell people that I can pass through these things. Oh, and also, I need your resources. I need, I need the timber from one of your royal forests so I can rebuild the gates. And oh yeah, and can you give me some because I want to build a house for myself there in Jerusalem? And oh yeah, I need your protection too because along the way, there's certainly going to be thieves and robbers along those roads that could very easily jump me, that could very easily kill me, rob me, all those things. I need all those things. And King Artaxerxes, this person who doesn't know God, he is not a Yahweh worshiper, says, that sounds like a good plan. Yeah, let's do that. Only God can make that happen. Only God can move a king, an unbelieving king's heart in that way. You see, he waited on God's answer and he moved forward with God's authority. And if you wait for God to answer your prayer in a clear and obvious way, you can move forward with his authority. 
You can move forward with his resources. You can move forward with his protection. All of those things. You know, that, and that's one of the reasons why I pray for things to be clear and obvious in your life and in my life as well, is because when I step forward, I don't want to be anxious wondering if I have forced something to try to make something happen. I, I want to have full confidence that, God, I'm just following you. You opened that door. So therefore, I move forward in your authority. And even though I step forward and then you go, oh my gosh, it feels like things are closing in and I, I, we don't have the provision that we need. I go, but, but Lord, I'm gonna have your provision because you opened the door. You made it clear and obvious. You gave me the burden. I'm only trying to follow you. I'm only trying to fulfill your vision and make your name great. Then God provides his authority, his provision, his protection. Wait for his answer so you can move forward with his authority. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. And the king grants his request. And so Nehemiah begins this trip back with uh, all of the, the king's kind of protection, this militia uh, surrounding him. And we see that he gets there, he gets to the city of Jerusalem, and it says that he rests for three days. Then look at verse 12 with me, beginning in verse 12. It says that he's there and he knows that he needs to go and assess the city. He says, so then I arose in the night, I and a few men who were with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. These people around him, this militia, they didn't even know why exactly he was going back, like the burden that was on his heart. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I had rode. He didn't make a big hoopla about what he was about to do. And then it says, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem. Stop right there. He goes back to Jerusalem. He rests for three days. Then he gets up in the middle of the night. And man, by the way, just as a habit, uh, here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. If you wake up in the middle of the night, pray. You ever just get woken up in the middle of the night? And, and you can't go back to sleep, just pray. Pray for whatever God puts on your heart. Pray for our church. Pray for, pray for all the wonderful city officials that we have. Pray for, pray for people in your family. Just pray. If God wakes you up in the middle of the night, okay? He wakes up in the middle of the night and he goes, I'm gonna go assess the damage. And it, and it says that he goes to look at how the condition is of the walls of Jerusalem. Now we know from the gates that he describes that he goes throughout the southern gates of the city and we've kind of got a map to show you. And so the, the north is obviously at the top, south is at the bottom. And so he's going to go assess what's going on down in that kind of southern part of the city. And, and here's why I, I think that is, is because at the southern part of the city, it, it had the most undulation. It, it, it was the steepest part. The, the northern part is, is, is much flatter. It, it, it was much easier to understand and to know what would need to be done on, on the northern side. But the southern side, it, it wasn't so clear. It, he, he didn't know how long it was gonna take. He didn't know what kind of resources it would take. He didn't know how many people needed to be on that job. And here's what I want us to do as you look at the, the rebuilding projects in your life. You've got to assess the damage to prioritize what needs your immediate attention. Assess the damage to prioritize what needs your immediate attention. 
You see, I think that Nehemiah goes to the southern part of the city because he knows that's going to be the worst. That's going to be the hardest place to rebuild. And so I might need to begin there. I have an idea what it's going to take on the flatter side. I get it. But here, I'm not exactly sure. And the damage was real there. It, it says that, that the animal that was underneath him, probably a donkey of some sort, couldn't even pass through. And remember, this is 140 years of disrepair. This is a big deal. But he goes and assesses the damage to begin to put together a plan. Prioritize. What does he need to do first? One of the interesting words that, that's used here is that word inspected. It says that he inspected the walls. That word inspected is actually in, in Hebrew, it's actually a medical term that was used of a doctor who probes a wound to see how deep the damage is so that they know how deep they have to cut to fix it, to heal that damage in that wound. And I think that's a really great picture for us when we talk about the things that God wants to do in our life, because I do believe that God is about restoration and God wants to heal us and heal our hearts. And some of us, though, we won't go inspect our hearts and inspect the, the, the deepest parts where that damage is because it's painful. It, it hurts. And you can imagine, that's why I bring out this word, that, that when a doctor is probing a wound and they're pushing on it and they're examining it, trying to figure out how deep the wound is, don't you think that hurts? That, that, that's, that's not a very comforting process, but they know ultimately that it's going to lead to healing. And sometimes we have to take really hard looks at our own lives to assess that damage. And sometimes you have to do it where it hurts. You see, it's easy for us to begin those rebuilding projects in the northern part of the city where we go, oh, this is easy. And this is, whatever, this, this is even what everybody sees first when they come in. Let's do the cosmetic stuff that makes us look good, but I don't wanna go, I don't wanna go to the harder parts. I don't wanna look down there. Because see, some of those harder parts to look at are self-inflicted wounds. They're the, they're, they're the gates that we've left open in our own lives where we've allowed the enemy to come in, where we've not paid too much attention and we haven't guarded our eyes, we haven't guarded our minds, we haven't guarded our hearts. And we say, we don't, we don't wanna probe into that one too far. I just don't wanna go there. Let me just live on the northern part. And God says, no, I wanna make you whole. I want to completely restore you, completely heal you. In order to do that, you've got to assess the damage and prioritize what needs to be done. And Nehemiah does that. Nehemiah goes to that southern part of the city, the hardest place to rebuild probably. And, and in your own life, one of the lessons I want you to take too from this in Nehemiah, notice he, it says that he didn't take many people with him. You know that? Listen, you've got to hear from God yourself. And you've got to hear from his word yourself through prayer. You, you, you can't go to a bunch of counselors. Now, he took a, a few people and getting wi wisdom and wise counsel is great. I do that all the time. 
but you can't get everybody's opinion because you'll only get confused. You gotta go to God yourself and you gotta figure out what he's calling you to do as you assess the damage and there prioritize what needs your immediate attention. You see, not only are you gonna get confused if you go to a lot of people, but you'll probably even try to get derailed by some others. You see, don't get distracted by those who might derail the work that you know you must do. If you begin to get too many opinions about what you should do in your own life as you rebuild, whether it's your own walk with God, you're gonna get some people that don't want you to change. We like the old Cody better, if they even like Cody at all. We, we like the old you better. You used to be so much more fun. You used to come out and do this with us. Why are you being so high and mighty? Why are you being so pompous? Why are you being this way? You see, those detractors were around Nehemiah. And we're gonna get introduced here and they're gonna show back up on the scene of Sambalot and Tobiah. And they're gonna come on the scene. They were governors in the nearby regions and they didn't want Nehemiah to begin this project to build up the people of God and to build God's city because they were taking advantage of God's people. They didn't want anything to change. We like things just the way they are. Leave it alone. It said, in fact, in verse 10, it says, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. We, we don't want anything to change. We like the power position we're in right now. Don't, don't make us feel bad about ourselves. That's, that, if you get too many opinions, I'm telling you, you're gonna get confused and derailed. You go to God yourself. Allow his word to speak to you and you'll know what he's called you to do and it'll keep you focused. And that'll be important because not only do you not need to take everybody's opinion, you need to take the counsel and wisdom of, of a few, but then you'll begin to need to gather assistance from others who want to see God glorified. Gather assistance from others who want to see God glorified. See, Nehemiah, after he makes this assessment, basically by himself, he didn't share anything with those who were already in the city. He didn't share with the, the priests, the nobles, the officials. But then it says in verse 17 that he gathers them around and he does. In verse 17, he says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. This is obvious, guys. You see the trouble how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. So come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And that word derision means shame or another way to put it is so that we won't be the laughing stock of those around us because we've been divided and taken advantage of. We've been, we've been a doormat for all of these folks. And it's time to stand up and do something great for God. And he gathers all of those people that see that trouble, that want the same thing. This is why we've got to gather assistance around us who want to see, people who want to see God glorified, who want to see him do a great work in us. And that's what he had in the priests, the nobles, the officials, 
They wanted God to be glorified in his city. We, we want the same for you. You see, because just as Jerusalem bore his name, we bear his name. I want to see him do wonderful, great things in your life. I, I wanna see him glorified and I'm willing to help. You see, that's the, that's the last point I, I gotta make here is ask for help from those who believe in God and what he can do. L- let, me, let me say this explicitly. This is a place that you can ask for help. We do not expect you to have everything together. I don't have everything together. I have to ask for help all the time. I am in constant need of assistance. But this is a place we can ask for help. Why? Because God can do great and mighty things when his people come together for his sake and his glory. And I wonder, you know, I was thinking as I was preparing this, I was thinking of that verse, Ephesians chapter three, verse 20, don't turn there. But when it says that, that God can do more than we could even ask or imagine, I, I wonder if sometimes we don't see things that we can't ask for and things that we can't even imagine because we don't wait in the prayer pocket, Be, because we don't assess the real damage in our lives and because we don't ask for help We don't ask for assistance from those who know that our God is great and can do wonderful, wonderful things that we could never ask or even imagine or dream. See, those are the things that I'm beginning to pray for. Those are the things that people in our church are beginning to pray for. Those are the things I believe God can do in and through us, in our community and in our world. Great and unsearchable things, but it's gonna take all of us. It's gonna take all of us. And it starts brick by brick. It starts individual believer by individual believer. Doing the work ourselves and joining the work of God, no matter how impossible or overwhelming it may seem, because nothing is impossible for God. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that Lord, a wall that you wanted to build to make your people safe and your name great hundreds of years ago inspires us today to join together as your people who want to stand up and say our God is great and can do great and unsearchable things. So Lord God, we surrender our lives to you I pray, Lord God, that you would be our foundation. Lord, that our vision wouldn't be our own, our vision wouldn't be selfish, but our vision would be selfless. And that we would say that anything we wanna build in our lives, Lord God, we wanna build on you. We want you to be the center of it because only with you at the center of it will it last, will it have meaning, will it have impact in our own lives and in our world. So Lord God, we surrender to you. Would you use us brick by brick to build something great for your sake? And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.